Welcome to Accessible Theology. Uh, we're a podcast dedicated to making theology accessible. Our goal is that we would know God truly so that we can love God deeply. Uh, we do this by uh, having conversations uh, surrounding the, the Word of God. Uh, we open up Scripture, uh, we talk about it, and uh, we enjoy it quite a bit. And we're glad that you're here to listen. We are currently working through the book of Colossians. Uh, Our last episode was at the end of chapter 2. We considered uh, verses uh, 16 to 23. So if you uh, want a deeper discussion of the context uh, moving into chapter 3, it might be helpful to go back and listen to that. But... We're going to look at uh, verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 3 today, and uh, we'll just spend some time talking about that. So the first thing that is helpful to do uh, as we open up this discussion is just to read the passage. So I will uh, take some time. I'm, I'm Aaron, by the way. I don't know. Do we need to say that anymore? I, I don't know. If you're new here, thank you. We're, we're, we're appreciative of that. Um, the other voice that you will hear eventually... Um, maybe you've already heard some mutterings, I'm not sure, uh, is Michael. Uh, we are both students at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, we've been friends for a long time. I guess we're getting old or something, but uh, we yeah. enjoy one another's company and discussing theological things with one another, so that's why we're here. Uh, and we're going to do that uh, after I read this passage from Colossians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 to 4. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So, Michael, where are we at in the book of Colossians? Where do we need to go in this conversation? Yeah, so, like many of Paul's letters, uh, he has a indicative and then imperative structure Mm. in the book of Colossians. So, we see this elsewhere in the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters are indicatives. You get to... Uh, 12, and there's now kind of an imperative of, therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God language in Ephesians. This takes place at around chapter 4. This happens in many of his books. He does the same here. He lays out a theological case in the first two chapters, which we've discussed in all the previous uh, podcasts we've done on this expositional podcast. (laughs) That's right. right. We've we've begun through Colossians. So, where we're at now in the book is actually that transition point into the imperatives. Now, it doesn't mean he hasn't said any commands previously, yeah. but now he's getting to kind of the applicational imperatival point in the book. Yep. And you know this because of how the way he sets this up with, therefore, since you have been raised with Christ. Right. So he, so he, um, some of your translations, as Aaron had read, it will say if there, but it's actually Paul is expecting. I think it's better to say since, like therefore, mm-hmm. since you have been raised with Christ. Paul is assuming this is true. He's been assuming it throughout, and he's getting to the point where he is giving Christians 
their walking or marching orders because of what he has established already. Yeah. So we've discussed that Christians are part of the, the new creation, that they were once alienated but have been drawn near and reconciled by the work of the Son of God. Uh, we see that he has refuted all the Gnostic and you know weird connections into Judaism that this Gnosticism was, was taking uh, form in within this church. And now he is telling Christians how to avoid these dangers, not just don't do these things. Like he looked at the dangerous teachings that were happening in verses 20 through 23 about don't do, don't touch, these legalism. Yeah, yeah. But he's not just going to add that. He's not just going to say, oh, right, well, they're saying don't do these things. I'm saying do them. No, like yeah. we have to think carefully about about our lives. And he is telling us that we need to basically renew our minds. Right. That similar to Romans 12, 1, that we are to have our minds renewed to know what is pleasing to God. And so we see that here in Colossians 3. So that's that's where we we find ourselves. And so Paul's phrase, therefore, since you have been raised with Christ, he tells us to keep striving for the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and to keep setting your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. I think it's important to add that language of keep striving because we can often read that and if he just says, set your minds on the things above or seek the things that are above kind of language, mm -hmm. we can often re read that as kind of a past tense thing, like a one-time act. Yeah, but that's yeah. not how Paul's thinking about this. Paul is thinking about the Christian life moment by moment and that we are over and over and over again to set our minds <laughs> on the things above, that we're, that we're to strive for those things that are above. Now, Aaron, why do you think, you know, a question that I have as I as I work through this, mm -hmm. we're told to strive for the things above. What is the uh, the importance of the language of the phrase where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Why do you think he's bringing that in here? Um, why does it matter for his argument that that's where we're to look and to, to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've got some maybe maybe union language going on that we are uh, united to Christ. Um and, and as we think about what is required of us in living as Christians, uh, those who are trying to follow after Christ, um, you know, there's there's obviously things to think through like, I don't know, the ascension maybe, you know, since, since he has been, uh, since he has ascended into heaven, there are uh, implications for us that, that we would need to consider that he has been uh, I don't enthroned. I guess uh, that he is reigning, ruling and reigning as king. That we are to come under submission to him, uh, to live our lives in light of uh, his person and work. And since he has been, uh, since all of those things have taken place, then he has, in a sense, proven, um, you know, all of the the prophecies that have been foretold of him. Uh, you know, he's ruling and reigning as the Messiah. We're setting our minds there, uh, s seeing him as, as who he truly is and seeking to live our lives um, in accordance with those truths. And that's that's even kind of the, the indicative imperative paradigm that you brought up. Would uh, just, I guess even the way I think about indicative Im imperative is to say um, it's, it's the uh, what is true of you and therefore what you must do. So there's the indicative stating all of the truth, uh, who we are, 
um, what what we have been made in Christ, and then the shift, as you've even noted, uh, what we must do because of who we are in Christ, uh, and so all of that union language coming in. So yeah, I, I guess that's where I, how I'm thinking through that specifically the um, things that are above, seated at the right hand of God, that we're setting our minds there, um, trying to live. Uh, based on what is true of what we have been made in Christ. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's it's vital for the Christian to understand that um, it is glorious and we must never forget. I mean, we think of Paul's language in Corinthians where he says that uh, he he desires to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that language is, is beautiful and tr- true. And yet, Crucified is almost a uh, synecdoche, if you will. It's a, it speaks of the totality of Christ's work. It's not just his death, because as Paul's very clear in Corinthians, First Corinthians fifteen, that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're people people to be most pitied. Yeah. So cr- the Christian life doesn't end at the cross. Uh, hallelujah. Um, <laughs> it, it, yeah. um, the, he go like Jesus is buried, as we read earlier in Colossians two, that he was buried and then raised by the yeah. power of God. And not just raised to life, but can raise and then enthroned and exalted and lifted and ascended to the Father's right hand to show that his work is complete and perfectly acceptable. Yeah. And that now that the glorified, resurrected Son is at the Father's right hand, we too will one day be resurrected to live uh, forever with our God in this fellowship. And so what we see in this, though, is a is a pointing to not only the importance of, of the resurrection, but the ascension. This is an often neglected area i think of our christian thought sure but when it says in hebrews seven twenty five that he always lives to make intercession for us it's mm-hmm. the fact that he's at the right hand the fact that he's been exalted that gives jesus this this prerogative this yeah. this ability to intercede on our behalf in a way that is uh that is effective that <clears throat> and um and actually garners and gains our uh full acceptance um yeah. it's it's a beautiful uh, truth that we have with our God. I was once told by a friend that Christ's continual intercession is like he's constantly just hitting the refresh button on our justification. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Not not that we need to be justified a million right, times. Right. The idea that that's what Christ's intercessions do. They yeah. they um, they plead and they re- and they and they remind and they call to remembrance constantly the notion that he has reconciled us to God, and that's where we're to set our affections on because remember in the previous section he's telling them to not be you know speculating in false humility you know we don't just speculate about visions and these grand things like the false teachers do instead we have an object for our faith yeah um we're not just designing people to think that we're high-minded instead our minds are to be oriented highly to the to the throne of god right they that we are to have our thoughts and affections renewed and restored and calibrated to constantly be thinking about who we are now in Christ. And then he says that as we keep setting our minds on the things above, we will not have it set on earthly things. Yeah. And this is this is very important because he has established earlier in places like uh, in 2.8, he says, see to it then no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, which are based on human tradition and the spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So false teaching 
while trying to put on this inflated spiritual show is actually substanceless and ironically is earthly. Mm. Whereas the Christian who these false teachers would say are way too earthly and based on material matter are actually the heavenly ones. So there's this flipping that Paul is saying, and he says that to not set your mind on earthly things doesn't mean don't take care of your family or your children or your spouse or don't don't have any possessions or or don't ever enjoy anything that God has made on this earth. That's what the false teachers were doing in, in chapter two, verses twenty through twenty three, that Paul says that's not the meaning here. Yeah. So when so I just want to hone in on that for a second. Um, not giving yourself to earthly things, as Paul says here, means that we are not to just be slaves to the world in the sense that we we abuse and use God's created gifts without reference to Christ. Yeah. So everything we are, everything we enjoy, our, what, from our families to our you know our relationships to our resources, our finances, mm-hmm. our possessions, our hobbies, all these things, they are to be enjoyed to the glory of God. So 1 yeah. Corinthians 10 talks about this, that whether you eat or whether you drink, do it to the glory of God. So we are to live in all things enjoying God. But when we make those things the end, when they become disconnected from the head, as Paul said last chapter, mm-hmm. disconnected from Christ, then we will abuse them and destroy what is good. That's what sin does. Yeah. Um, so Paul's not saying become detached and become a Gnostic here. Yeah. Don't enjoy the things that were. So it's just very important to, to, yeah. to unpack that. So do you, do you have anything you want to add to that, Aaron? Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking of it in terms of a um, a statement of contrast instead of a statement of negation. So mm-hmm. um, instead of exactly what you're saying, instead of saying, all right, now don't do anything that has to do with earthly things, I think it's more a statement of um, the things that, you know, you desire here on this earth cannot become the ultimate desire. They cannot become, you know, the driving reality of your life that has to be and can only be Christ and who you are in him, uh, which will then have implications for how you're doing all of the things that you're doing here on this earth. Uh, And so he's not saying don't do any of those things. He's saying do them uh, as you would uh, I think he says other places as you would for Christ, as if you're doing them for Christ. Um, and then, yeah. so then in, in verse three, he gives, he gives like the foundation, the reason for that when he says you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so that even kind of becomes the, the motivation uh, for that. So that, that statement, I, I mean, I think is an important statement, has a lot of, a lot of things that we could draw out from there, I'm sure. But Mm-hmm. Does that does that become like kind of the uh, the motivating factor uh, for for all of the things we're doing? This fact that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say first it's important to understand that hidden has to be read in more of like a protected sense, yeah, right? yeah, a yeah. guarded sense. So it's not that we have some hidden special life that is disconnected from reality or something yeah. like that. It's not just me and my Jesus time without reference <laughs> to anything else. Yeah. Paul, Paul means that our life is protected and guarded and secure in Christ. And and I can say that with, with the utmost confidence that that's what he means, because in chapter two, verse 13, he, he, if you remember, he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Mm. So 
So there's this, he's picking up on that same concept, right? You, you, I've died. You, in Christ's death, you've been co-crucified, if mm. you will. Yeah. And now you've been raised to newness of life and your life is protected with Christ in God. This is, and that language with Christ in God reminds me of John 10 so much that we are in the hand of the Father and I and the Father are one, right? This is like a double padlock protection of goodness. Now, of course, we know it's a triple padlock. It's triune. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> like, so we don't want to just say And no. yet it's one padlock. Oh, man. Yeah, I know, right? There you go. <laughs> um, but our life is completely secure and that's the ground. So again, it's important to point out in verse three, it starts with four yeah. or you could say because. Yeah. So so why is it that you keep setting your things on the mind, not earthly things? Well, because you've died. Yeah. So if you're dead to the earth, then why would you live in accordance with it? This reminds a lot of the end of Galatians where Paul says that we have been crucified to the world through the cross of Christ. Yeah. It, we are dead to its affections. And we remember, like in First John two fifteen, that the that the world and and its lusts and desires are passing away; they are dying. Mm-hmm. We've already died to them, yeah. and now we live in Christ. And so this, and and to know that, like this, gives such freedom and confidence to know that we can enjoy the things of this world, and we can live um, reconciled to our God without any fear. Of this being taken away. That's right. Unlike these false teachers who you need to keep working to appease, you need to keep giving up, whether it's like he says, whether it's not tasting, not handling. And he says in verse 22 of chapter two, these will all perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. So ironically, these things are earthly, therefore they die. If you live in Christ, you are dead to those things, and yet you can enjoy them now, right? There is such a paradox shift that Paul is doing, and and don't miss the 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 deep irony, but the joyous irony that is had here that we can enjoy all these things in Christ the way they're supposed to be, yeah. knowing that we will actually we won't take our earthly possessions with us to heaven, but we can live in such a way on this earth that we don't have to be ashamed at Christ's return yeah. of how we squandered our possessions or squandered the the gifts that God has given, that our life is hidden with him and we can confidently live uh, in that way on this earth. Yeah. And then he, he moves on, though, in four when he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So I think what I would note, Aaron, and I'd love to hear you unpack this a bit for us, but it seems to me that what Paul has done here in these four verses, is give us the past, present, and future of the Christian life. That's right. We have died in Christ. We are living in Christ, and our life is coming. Yeah. Right. You know, like so the, the totality, the whole warp and woof, if you will, of our Christian experience here yeah. is unpacked in four short, short verses. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, and it, it speaks of the, you know, like the position that we have in Christ before the Father. It speaks of the the transformation that takes place in our lives. We we would call that sanctification, where we are increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, And then ultimately, uh, what we are yet awaiting, uh, we will appear with him in glory. Uh, And so there's there's the aspect of glorification as well. 
And those are, I mean, those are just three great realities for, for the Christian to, um, to cling to, you know, that we can, we can be sure of, of our position, uh, before the father, we can be, um, sure of our transformation by the spirit. And we can, we can long for and wait for the day when we will, uh, fully bear, uh, the image of the son again, uh, where it will be seen in, in glory, in perfection. And so, yeah, just those three realities, um, I think help us to, to do this rightly, uh, instead of, instead of thinking that we're setting our mind on things above so that we can earn positions so that we can gain status, whatever it might be. I mean, God is doing this work in us and, uh, he's transforming our desires. We, we, you know, we are to read the word so that our, our way of thinking can be transformed and it, it comes into conformity with uh, how God would desire us to think. And we do that while we wait for what is to come. And uh, we do it with assurance. We do it with great hope. And we look forward um, to just even the simple fact that because Christ was raised, we too will be raised and just have great assurance and confidence uh, that these things uh, are taking place and will take place because of what has taken place. Uh, and so the past, present, and future are all there. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's helpful. I think that's right and something that we should, we should cling to and uh, just trust, trust God in the process of, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I, the common uh, analogy that is used to capture this life, I think, is helpful here is the illustration of D-Day and B-Day. The idea that you have the the day in in the history of the world wars where the the beaches of Normandy were stormed, the war was won, and for all intents and purposes, the war was determined that day. Yeah. Um, but it took some time for V-Day to take place. A couple of years where victory over Europe Day actually finally where it was signed on the dotted line. Yeah. And so, in some sense, the conquest was accomplished, but there's a time in which it has to to be the message has to be shared and, and and gone out into the world. Well, in a similar way, we think of that with in relation to Christ. Christ on the cross and at the at the resurrection and the enthronement definitively gave the mortal blow to Satan and and all enemies. That as as I said, we looked at in Colossians two the idea that he has shamed the rulers and authorities yeah. and and triumphed over them. That's already happened. It's yep. done. Yep. Nothing will change this this result. And yet, just like in that analogy with D-Day and V-Day, we have these 2,000 years of history where that message is going out yeah. and it's being shared. And there will be a day like there, when Christ returns where the paperwork is signed, sealed, <laughs> delivered, and done, yeah. and, and we will appear with him yeah. in glory. Um, and that, that analogy, I think, the reason it's helpful and the reason that it's used so often is because it captures the assurance that the Christian can have. That the that the the war is over in a very real sense, but the war is still raging. Yeah. And, and you go, okay, what? The already not yet comes in there, and and that's not contradictory statements. Mm-hmm. The, we see this in human history happen in things like wars, and we see this happening even in this redemptive era we find ourselves mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. That um, we are winning, yet we are still fighting. That's right. But we fight from a position of victory. Yep. And uh, and so our confidence is sure, 
but we understand that this war will rage on. And just like in the the D-Day V-Day analogy, there were people who, for the Allied forces, died in between Mm -hmm. those announcements. Mm And, there, and similarly, there will be brutal warfare. There will be, as as Jesus tells us, loss of limbs, the plucking of eyes as we fight against our sin yeah. to the death, even in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we don't do that with with reference to the thought that we might lose. Yeah. Yeah. There's, we banish that thought because that de- decisive blow has been struck. At Golgotha, mm-hmm. Normandy was stormed. And destroyed, right? It's it is done, and so we take great confidence that as Christians, and we ought to. Um, you, you live in the aroma of Christ's victory, like Second Corinthians uh, two, I believe. Just, yeah, two fourteen through eighteen talks about that we are that we are the triumphant procession of Christ, that He is leading us, and so for these last two thousand years, He has been showing off through His church, and mm-hmm. He has indeed won, mm-hmm. and um, and that the, the gates of hell will not stand against this. And note that. It's not like gates are not put up as a um, as a mechanism of charging. Gates are put up to stop the enemy from invading. Mm. So what that means is that Christ will have this world and his conquest has been taking place, that he that his redemptive plan has gone out from the Israelite from originally just the Israelites. And now it is taking over the world, as Paul said in Colossians one six, the whole world is bearing fruit. Yeah. Uh, Satan's kingdom is under siege and it is losing yep. it is the is the picture we see here and that's a that's an amazing hope for us amen it is indeed an amazing hope and a great word for us to end on uh, we do again just want to thank you for listening and uh, hope that you found this beneficial and if you did maybe even uh, share it with a friend uh, where we appreciate that you take the time to listen and as always we want to charge you to love god know truth and live accordingly